Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. I'm your host, Eric Flickinger, and we are looking at lesson number seven. Lesson number seven is Jesus the Anchor of the Soul. We, of course, are looking at the book of Hebrews this quarter, delving into it and seeing why it is so important for us to understand in this time of Earth's history. Our guest this time, as it has been for the last seven weeks, is the author of this quarter's lesson. That is Dr. Felix Cortez. Pastor Felix, thank you for joining us once again. Ah, it's a pleasure to be with you. All right, so let's take a look at this. Jesus, the anchor of the soul. I like the memory verse for this particular week. It's found in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. And it says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So here, Jesus is described as an anchor for the soul. Now, what does an anchor do? Why is this concept of Jesus being the anchor so important to us as Christians living in a society, in a world that, uh, that causes us some struggles. An anchor is really important because it gives you security. Now, in, this is, of course, a nautical metaphor. Boats have anchors. But I think that the best metaphor we could use is the anchor of those who do rock climbing. Because in those cases, the anchor is... Up, up there, right? You have the, the, the rope that provides you with security, but the rope is anchored at the top. And, uh, and that's what Jesus is. Jesus ascended to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God, and he is the anchor. He provides security of salvation for us. And, and I could speak a little bit about what, what that means. But basically, in a, in a nutshell, the, the, the argument of Hebrews, and it's not the only aspect of the meaning, but one of the, probably the main aspect of the meaning is God saying, look, just as I did with Jesus, I want to do with you. Jesus proves that I have the ability and the intention to save human beings. He is the first one. Paul would say in other places, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrected, uh, he's the first fruits of, of humanity. And God is saying, well, what I'm doing with Jesus, I'm going to do with you. And, um, and, and so when we look at Jesus, we look at the evidence that God means what he promised, that he will do what he said he was going to do. And that is the evidence. And, and that's why he's our anchor in that sense. There are other senses as well. But that, that one is an important one to have in mind. I think that's powerful for us to understand that what God did for Jesus, he also wants to do for us. This, uh, this message, as you've mentioned before, uh, the book of Hebrews is, is kind of a, it's a sermon that the author gives to the people in Jerusalem and, and to us today. And there's a, there's a passage, a portion of this sermon that's kind of like a, a detour. Um, he's, he's, preaching along, and, and then here in chapter 5 and chapter 6, there's this detour where he begins to kind of give some warnings, uh, as if he knows the struggles that maybe they're facing or the ones that they're going to face, uh, that many people face in their Christian walk. 
And here in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse number 4, he says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That, that sounds really good up to that point. And then we get to verse number 6, and, and there's this, this concerning passage here. He says, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So we have this concept of Jesus being our anchor and and being up above and, and giving us security from above. But here, Paul says, it's possible for people to taste the goodness of the Lord and be partakers and then he talks about them falling away. Should this be uh, something we look at carefully? Yes, I think we should. Uh, this passage uh, talks about the danger of the Christian in disconnecting his life permanently from Jesus. And in the background of this passage is the, um, the case, what happened with the desert generation. The desert generation experienced God's power. They saw God's wonderful deeds in Egypt. And they experienced the, the blessings of God, the, the manna, the water from the rock, the, the, the cloud that became a, a, a column of fire in the night. They experienced all of that. Yet they arrived at the border of the land, just as we are the border of the land of the promises of the heavenly homeland. They arrived to the border of the land and they lacked faith. And they say, God, you know, we, we don't trust you. We want to appoint another leader. And when they took another leader and rejected Moses and wanted to kill him, to stone him, God said, you are not going to be able to return. The problem is that for us, it can be a similar situation. Uh, you know, when a person, after having experienced that good word of God, having been transformed, converted, that person decides to reject the work of Jesus on his behalf and to kill that relationship, to to completely erase permanently that relationship between Jesus and him, then there is no way God can restore that person to repentance because Jesus is the only way in which a person can be restored to repentance. Jesus is here exactly like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is really the agent of Jesus is the, the, the means by which Jesus um, uh, um, uh, reaches to us. So what Hebrews is talking about is the, the sin against the Holy Spirit that he talked about in Matthew 12 and other places in the Gospels. The, 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 the form, the way in which the author of Hebrews talks about this is crucify again for themselves the Son of God. This expression of crucifying again is you put Jesus in the cross. And what you do there is you just immobilize Jesus. Is to say, Jesus, you cannot do anything more for me. We have cut that relationship. That is expressed in Hebrews 10, 26 and following in a different, with different language. It is the one who sins voluntarily. It's not just any sin. It's the sin described in Hebrews 10, 29, two verses later. Is the sin of, uh, you know, uh, putting Jesus 
trampling upon the Son of God, right? You trample upon enemies. You treat Jesus as an enemy. And then um, it talks about Hebrews 10, 29, uses another expression for the, for the blood. Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, meaning that counts the blood of the covenant not simply as a way of redemption, but as a way of contamination. A common thing means a thing that contaminates. So that means Jesus uses to save you, you consider them a contamination. And then you insult the spirit of grace. God uses the spirit to reach to you. But if you don't, if you insult the spirit of grace and you cut your relationship with the spirit of grace, there is no other way God can reach you. You are cutting the blood, which is the means of salvation, the spirit, which is the agent of Jesus to speak to your heart. You cut Jesus, which is the source of salvation. There is no other way God can save you and God can restore you to repentance. Now, people, when hear this, get afraid. And, and the first question is, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Have I cut my relationship permanently with God? Well, if you are asking that question, that means that you haven't cut that relationship because you are asking that question because the Holy Spirit is still speaking to you. You are still hearing the voice of Jesus or the voice of the Holy Spirit, which is the voice of Jesus, speaking to you. You are still open to that. If you have that fear, God and you are still have a connection and there is a way to be restored. Now, there is no sin that God cannot forgive. You know, the, the cross of Christ is enough for every kind of sin. The only sin that the cross of Christ does not cover is that sin for which we do not repent. That sin for which we do not ask Jesus to forgive us. That sin that we do not put in his hands. That is a sin against the Holy Spirit. That is to say, we cut the relationship, says God, I am going to do my life. I don't want you to hear me. We crucify Jesus. You cannot do anything for me. But if you hear the voice of Jesus, there is still time and there is still uh, 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 the possibility for you to be restored, definitely. So that's fantastic news to all of us. Uh, every single one of us watching, listening. You think of some of the sins that have been forgiven in the Bible. Murder has been forgiven. You know, Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. Um, adultery, uh, David checks that box too. Uh, you think of all the sins that have been committed, Jesus is willing to forgive any of them on one condition. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You were going to say something. Yes, sorry for interrupting, Eric. But, you know, possibly the sin of David was not simply adultery, it was rape. There are a good case to be made that really David raped Bathsheba, yet he was forgiven. So we've got powerful evidence of what God can and will forgive if repentance is part of the equation, if confession is part of the equation. If there's no confession, if there's no repentance, well, then there's not a whole lot that God can do if we're not willing to give it to him. He can't forgive it. He can't cleanse us. But if we confess, if we forsake, if we repent, then the future is very bright for us indeed. We're going to keep digging into the book of Hebrews here 
looking at Jesus, the anchor of our soul, when we come back in just a moment. But I want to encourage you, if you haven't already done so, please go and pick up the companion book to this quarter's study on the book of Hebrews. We're looking at why Hebrews applies to us today. And you can find the companion book at itiswritten.shop. Again, that's itiswritten.shop. We're going to continue looking at some more encouraging messages from the book of Hebrews in just a moment. We'll be right back. This is Pearl. When Pearl heard about the Eyes for India initiative, she decided she was going to take matters into her own hands. When Pearl's birthday came around, she invited all of her friends over for a birthday party, and the theme of the party was Eyes for India. She told her friends about the thousands of people in India who couldn't see, and how this critical eye surgery could change their lives. Instead of gifts, Pearl asked that her friends bring donations for this important project. Because of Pearl's influence, seven people are now able to see. Her story inspired our brand new mission kit. It's a box that has everything you need to fundraise your own project for Eyes for India. Whether it's at the front desk of your business, part of your small group, or a special church project, this kit is guaranteed to change lives. We can't wait to hear about all the creative ways you find to make this resource come to life, just like Pearl. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. We've been looking here in lesson number seven at Jesus, the anchor of the soul. And there are some some very graphic depictions of what happens when people don't connect with him, when they cut that connection with him. And it would be a pretty depressing book if that's where things stopped. Now, of course, the good news is that's not where things stop. Uh, Each time that Paul talks about these warnings, he also gives us some encouragement. And I want to read a little bit of that encouragement here in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse number 9. Paul says, But beloved, this is right after the the warnings, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. That's sort of hopeful. I mean, after looking at the passages uh, a few before uh, about being crucifying the Son of God afresh and so forth, he gives us a little bit of hope here, doesn't he? Yes. In fact, there are several warning passages in Hebrews, and after every warning, the Apostle Paul always have a word of encouragement. He says, you know, be careful with this, but I think you're going to do great. You, I, I have confidence in you. That's what he does constantly. 
And I like that. I think we need to be like that. We need to be aware of the difficulties that we, and the dangers we face. But always we have to express trust. Our kids, we need to warn them about the dangers that they face and, and that, that, that results of some of their uh, behavior if they're not going in a good direction. But we, know, we need also to say, you know, but I have a better uh, expectation about you. I think you're going to do great. You're, I think you're going to do the best decisions that can be done. We need to follow Paul's example in that regard as well. So this, this hopefulness that he gives us after each one of these warnings doesn't leave us in despair. He's educating us, I guess you might call it that, uh, of the warnings of, of what's out there, the dangers that are out there. But he says you've got, you've got Christ on your side. You've got that anchor of the soul that you can cling to, and you don't need to despair of what might be. You could choose to cling to what can be, and, and that is a wonderful, glowing, strong, faithful relationship with Jesus. That's what he wanted for his, his hearers to believe back then, to understand back then, and for us today, too. Yes, and, and, and I think it's very important to understand what is the basis of this confidence. What is this, what is this anchor? We have said that it's Jesus, but Jesus is performing here a very interesting role. Let me say it first and then explain it. Jesus is the embodiment or the personification of God's oath. God's oath. And the basis of, of the encouragement that Paul is speaking about is that God swore an oath to Abraham. God swore an oath to David. And that oath is the anchor of our salvation. Why? Because it is impossible for God to lie when he has sworn an oath. Just as it is impossible for God to restore us to repentance without Jesus, it is impossible for God to lie on his oath. And let me explain what, how these oaths have been the anchor of assurance for the people of God throughout generations. I'm going to read two passages. I want to, to go, if you have the opportunity to go with me, to Exodus 32, verses, um, probably verses 9, well, 12 and following. What happened there is that the, the, Moses has been, say, has been told by God, you know, go down the mountain because these people have built a golden calf. They have broken the covenant we just made a few days ago. They have followed different gods. I'm going to destroy them because that is what happens when you break a covenant. And God and Moses says to, to, to God, don't do that. Don't do that. And, and, and he, he makes a very important argument. And I want to, make, I want to read this argument. He says, verse, um, verse uh, 12, uh, says, Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath, and relent from this harm to your people. First, God, don't do it because it's going to look bad on you. The people is going to say that you, you brought these people out to the desert and you couldn't save them, so you killed them. Don't do that. And then he uses the second argument. But the second argument is a clincher. And he says, remember, verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, 
and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. God, don't do it because you made an oath. You told Abraham that you're going to bless all the nations through your seed. How are you going to, how you're going to destroy your seed? You cannot do that. And God said, you're right. I cannot do that. I made an oath. The oath is our guarantee. You see? It's not that we, it's not that we say, if you forgive me, God, I'm going to give you service. No. It is not, if you forgive me, God, I'm going to, I'm going to always be, I'm going to give you this offering. No, that, that, that doesn't make any sense to God. The only thing that we can say, God, I need your forgiveness, not because I, I deserve anything. In fact, I don't deserve anything. The only thing that I can say is that you promised. And I need you to fulfill your promise. That's the only thing. And God says, of course, I'm going to fulfill my promise because it is impossible for God to lie when he swears an oath. You see? That is the first oath, the oath to Abraham. But the book of Hebrews says that there are two oaths. This anchor is a double anchor. It's a two threads together, you know, very strong. That is the oath to David. And the oath to David is in Psalm 110 verse 4. God has sworn and he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And, and, you know, if you go with me to Psalm 89, Psalm 89 is a very long psalm. If you have time, go and read it after this program. Read it by yourself. But if you go to Psalm 89, verse 1, it says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known for faithfulness to all generations. And verse 3 says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. You see, here, verse 3, you have God making this covenant with David. God has sworn to David that through his seed, his seed is going to sit forever in the throne of Israel. And if you go to verses uh, 4 and following all through those, all that passage, it describes God's covenant and God's Oath to David. But then comes the end of the chapter. Let's go to verse 45. And then he says, uh, uh, verse 38, sorry, verse 38. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges, etc., God, your anointed one, the king, has been defeated. Is, you have abandoned him. He's going through a very difficult situation. Probably what happens here, there, there was some kind of defeat or problem for the Davidic king. And the psalmist it says, God, you made an oath. You made a covenant. And now the Davidic king is being defeated. He's going through this shameful, difficult situation. And then, and then what, what the psalmist is saying, God, you made an oath. You made a promise. You cannot renounce your promise. Please fulfill your promise. And then what happens? How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? 
Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? What man can live and not see death? Can he live, deliver his life from the power of, of the grave? Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David your truth? God, where is that covenant, that oath? Where is it? And the psalmist knows that this argument cannot be defeated. This argument needs to be answered. When I was studying, I, I told you at, at, at another moment about um, my, my brother who told me, you don't play with your son enough. Well, I've made a promise to my son. I'm going to study at, at my office hard because I'm, I'm doing this project. It's very important, but I will come at this time every day and we're going to play. And you know, if you, if those who know a little bit about Michigan, especially Bergen Springs, in the, in the winter, can snow very, 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 a lot, right? And sometimes I came and I, uh, there was a lot of snow and I, I was very tired. And so when I opened the door, my son was with the soccer ball and ready to go. I said, but it's completely snow outside. It doesn't, doesn't matter that. Let's go and play. We will go to, at the back of Pioneer Memorial Church. There is a light. There is a, a soccer goal there. And my son was the, the goalie because the snow, he could jump and, you know, like a, a professional goalie. And I said, but I'm very tired. It's very cold. And then he would say, Dad, you promise. I says, you're right. I promise. We need to go. The only hope that we have is that he promised. And we, when we come to him, we say, God, I messed up completely. I know that I messed up. I did a bad thing. But you promised that you were going to transform me. Fulfill that promise. You made an oath that through your son, you were going to bless all the nations of the earth. I, I'm one of those of the nations. Fulfill your promise. And you know what? That is the anchor of my soul. There is the anchor of your soul, God's oath, and it is impossible for God to lie. He will fulfill his promises. That is a beautiful message of Hebrews. Two oaths in which it is impossible for God to lie. That's encouraging. And if it's not encouraging to you, I don't know what planet you're from. That's, that's got to be about the most encouraging thing that we could possibly hold close to our hearts and know that God wants to save us. He wants, to, he wants us to enter into that heavenly kingdom. He's made it possible. He's keeping his end of the bargain. He's never going to lie. He's never going to let us down. Now it's up to us to just say, well, to say what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. We can have that hope. We can have that encouragement. We can have that anchor to hold on to in Jesus and his will in our lives. I want to thank you once again for joining us for Sabbath School this week. We are looking forward to seeing you again next week as we dig into lesson number eight, looking at the book of Hebrews and why it applies so much to our lives today. God bless you. We'll see you then. <music>